Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 117. As always, I hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're having a good week over here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. A little bit of news as we drop this episode on Wednesday, November 18th. On Friday, November 20th, my longtime band, Funnel, uh, is releasing our first, quote, new song since 2009. Uh, It is a quarantine cover, uh, of all things, of the great Statesboro Blues. So if you're interested, I would love it if all of you guys would check that out. It'll be streaming everywhere on Friday morning. Hey, we've got a fantastic episode for you today. I am going to be joined by Blair Senta in just a moment. Um, Blair has just played with everybody. We'll go through some of that discography here in just a moment. Um, But just an excellent educator, excellent drummer, excellent recording engineer. He just does everything so well. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Uh, We'll be back with Blair right after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Lost Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Lost Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Lost Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great Blair Senta in just a moment. Um, Blair has just, uh, again, played with everybody. Uh, Alanis Morissette. Annie Lennox, Gwen Stefani, Stevie Nicks, Chris Cornell, John Fogarty, um, Lisa Loeb, Better Than Ezra. The list goes on and on and on. Um, He runs the Donkey Den recording studio out in Los Angeles, and he also has a great educational 
uh, video series called Sticks and Wires that everybody should check out. And uh, just a phenomenal drummer. Uh, and, and we talked about a wide range of issues and topics in this interview. And it was very enlightening for me. And I know it will be for you. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Blair Senta. Hey, good morning, Blair. How's it going, man? Jamie. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you for taking time to do it. We really uh, we really do appreciate it. Uh, the burning question that we're asking, you know, all of our guests, I know you're staying busy uh, simply because you've got the donkey den and probably doing a lot of drum tracks, but uh, anything live going on in your life? Um, well, oddly enough, this Friday, uh, what today is two. I'm actually going to play a gig for the first time since March, and it'll be in a club, uh, a place called the Hotel Cafe, with, which some people may have heard of. Uh, I think they, they have a reputation. Um, but there, there will be no one in there except the band, but it'll be, it'll be a live cast. Okay. So I'm going to do that, and then, um, oddly enough, the following week, I'm going to play outdoors, which will be kind of a... I was doing a gig right before quarantine started to kind of a residency with my friend. Uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Young, who's a really uh, great keyboard player. He's played with Sting and Steely Dan and all kinds of people, but we were doing a little residency. It's kind of a, you know, a bluesy thing. He, he plays B3 and uh, left-hand bass and um, sings a bit. And we're going to have play a little jazz in there too. So just, you know, it'll be nice to get out and play. Uh, man, it's I, yeah. I've definitely been shedding way more than I have in a long time, which is kind of nice. You know, I feel like I'm a, a little better <laughs> well, than I was, that, but I'm I'm de- I'm definitely ready to play with some people. Yeah, I hear you. And you know, let me just say this: that's all the rest of us need is for Blair Senta to be shedding a whole bunch uh. for the last seven months. <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. Get, Leave some for the rest of us, big dog. Hey, man, it, you know, uh, we all have things to work on. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, someday my left hand will be where I want it to be. So, you know, that's, <laughs> no, my, that's my goal. No, no it know? won't. You know that. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. No, no drummer is ever happy with their left hand ever. You right, know? right, right. So, so yeah, man. Well, yeah. well, cool. I'm glad you got some stuff going on. And, and you know, we'll get into, um, y- you know, kind of the, the educational stuff that you're doing and the remote tracking. You know, I'll talk about all that stuff. But, you know, kind of our tradition here on the drum shuffle is, you know, we go back, we rewind to the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. you, you're a Michigander. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I'll say this: Go Irish, Boo Wolverine. So, oh man, <laughs> oh man. You know that? Oh, we're not playing this year, are we? No, man. we're not. Because this would be. A, this seems like it's going to be a good year. Yeah, it does. I mean, you guys looked. Game. You guys looked really good, but look. Uh, but anyway, so so yeah. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Anyway, we don't want to go down that. Yeah, road. We, we, we. Yeah, we're not going to be adversaries here. So, yeah. <laughs> Ann Arbor, Michigan. Talk to me about how did you get into drumming to begin with? Do you come from a musical family? I do. Very musical family. Um, My father is a world-renowned classical saxophonist, um, and he was 
professor of saxophone at the University of Michigan for 40 years, and he was a soloist that, you know, he would travel and he would be a soloist uh, with orchestras. He would play with the Detroit Symphony if they needed a saxophonist uh, for certain things. Um, And my mother was a uh, uh, public school music teacher. Um, She taught piano at home privately, and she taught flute. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of grew up in it. And my dad also was a director at the, uh, the Allstate program at Interlochen Center for the Arts during the summers. So I would go up there as a youngster. So I was, I was just immersed in it, you know, as a, as a kid. Yeah. So I, my question is, how in the world did you end up as a drummer? How did your father allow that? <laughs> I mean, huh. I, <laughs> it's, it's funny that you say that, actually, because you know, I initially said I wanted to play drums and they said, ah, pick something else. <laughs> yeah. So I played saxophone for a year. Um, and then because of interlock and I was also, they were allowing me to play some drums, even though my focus was saxophone. But then, um, uh, in sixth grade, I auditioned for the, the high school or the all city band and I was asked, you can be first chair on, uh, in percussion or saxophone. And they said, you got to pick one. And, you know, my parents let me take the phone call. And I said, I'm going to be, I'm going to play drums. And that was the last time I think I picked up a saxophone. Yeah. So, well, you made the right yeah. choice. Let, let me just say that you, you've done, <laughs> you've done okay for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't, yeah, the saxophone thing, a great instrument. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I would have been as passionate about it so yeah Yeah, for sure well you know i mean obviously growing up in michigan it's it's kind of odd it's it's you know and i have found that there is a a geographical limitation to marching band you know i grew up in the south Mm. so Mm -hmm. marching is kind of where you know all young drummers kind of earn their stripes and mm-hmm. what I've found is, you know, where hockey is a little bit more prevalent, there's not a marching band at school, you know, but being in Michigan, I would assume there's a lot of football. So did you do marching band and jazz band and all those things in school as well? That's, that's, kind of, that's an interesting observation. Um, uh, I did marching band, but my high school marching band was really not anything to write home about. And um, I was always a bit actually frustrated because the Michigan marching band is a good marching band. Um, and I would, you know, I would go to football games every week with my parents and I would watch that. And I wanted to be a better, better, um, you know, rudimental drummer to be able to play those things. And I was taking lessons. I was taking more like classical lessons. That was kind of my deal with my parents. They they said, okay, if you're going to play drums and you're not going to play a saxophone, you're going to learn marimba and you're going to play timpani and you're going to play an orchestra. So I was, I was being trained as a classical percussionist and I was, um, th- my drum set education was kind of on my own. You know, that was yeah. just me self taught, but I always wanted to be a better rudimental drummer. And I was frustrated with my high school experience as far as that aspect of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then when I, I, you know, I got to North Texas, I'm jumping ahead. I got to North Texas and I was, you know, I played in the pit in North Texas but I had nowhere near the hand that those guys had who had been doing that stuff for, for ages already. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it goes without saying, you know, it, when you go to North Texas, 
as a drummer, you, you're going to come out a better drummer. There's there's no question about that. Um, you better, yeah. <laughs> y- yeah, I mean, uh, if you showed up, you know. <laughs> so You would think by osmosis something would, ha- would seep through, right? right? Yeah, for sure. Now, you and I are fairly close in age, um, and, and I'm trying to think, you know, who, who are some of the guys that were probably there at the same time? I don't, I don't know. Was Matt Chamberlain already gone by the time you got there? Yeah, Matt was gone. Um, I know Matt now. We're friends now. But, uh, yeah, he was gone. Um, man, I had uh, – it's kind of insane, the guys that were there when I was there. Um, Keith Carlock, Jason Sutter, Rich Redmond. Uh, who else? I'm, I, you know, a guy named Brian Delaney in New York. My friend Rob Sharon, who actually lives in Michigan. Who he, Rob's not well – well known really but oh my god one of the most incredible drummers that i know you know yeah um guy named jim white who teaches at university of north Col- northern colorado now incredible incredible drummer i mean just so many incredible drummers but you know definitely some name guys like carlock and sutter and rich redman yeah, yeah. J- just those names right there account for probably 50 million records sold so uh, <laughs> y- y- you know it's it's not yeah. Not a bad, uh, not a bad list for sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and as we know, there's always just there's, there's so many drummers that you know don't necessarily have a you know quote unquote popular name, but are just incredible players. You know. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's just yeah. such a legendary school. Uh, you know, I mean, at some point, and I know we're kind of jumping around chronologically here, but at, at some point, you made the decision. Hey, I want to do this for a, a living as a vocation. How early on in your career did you decide this is what I'm going to do? I mean, my, my recollection is, is I was about 11 years old. I mean, okay. just when I started, I, I was like, this is, this is it, you know? I mean, I couldn't get out of high school fast enough to, <laughs> I was like, I'm moving to LA and that's it. You know what I mean? I always yeah. had a one track mind. Yeah. Well, it, it, so, I mean, obviously you followed through on that because as we speak right now, you're, you're in Los Angeles. Um, after your, you know, experience at North Texas, did you immediately go to LA, right? I mean, the day you graduated? Uh, two weeks after. Okay. I did. Yep. I played a, uh, I graduated in December of 95 and I, went home for Christmas. I came back to Texas. I played a New Year's gig. And then on January 2nd, I believe I drove to LA. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah. you knew exactly what you were going to do then. So, um, I did. Yeah. Now when you got to LA, I mean, obviously there is, you, you know, we've talked about North Texas and, and the alumni, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. did you have some contacts in LA already when you made that move? Um, uh, just a few, um, my friend, John Button, who I went to school with, uh, was out here. He's a bass player and John, John now plays in the who, and he's played with Sheryl Crow and all kinds of people. So John was out here. Um, and he was actually living with some other North Texas guys, guys I actually didn't know yet, but guys who are good friends now. Um, my brother was living here. He's not a musician, but he was living out here. So there was a little bit of a family contact, which was good. And I mean, there were a couple phone calls I made, you know, uh, a guy named Scott Mayo, who was one of my father's students, saxophonist. And, um, 
You know, uh, so there was a few things, but it was pretty, I mean, I didn't really know many people. You know what I mean? There was no shoe in. There was no like, hey, I got a gig for you kind of thing. Sure. You know? Yeah. So so you basically had to go out, you know, to one of the most, you know, competitive music scenes on the face of the planet and plant your flag and, (laughs) you know, start doing the open mics, I would assume, and, and get your name out there and networking. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, my, my thought process is, well, if I want to do this, I'm going to have to do the, you know, the quote unquote 10 year struggle. I might as well start now as fast, you know, (laughs) as early as I can. Right. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I thought about it. I was like, let's just get it going. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I mean, I, and you know, we won't go through your entire resume and your entire discography, but there's, there's a few around that time, you know, I, I don't think it took you very long to start getting on some, you know, records that got traction, you know, talk to me about, you know, some of those early, um, you know, meetings that you had in, in LA and, and, you know, some of those first big breaks. Um, let's see my first, well, my first kind of like live thing that had anything to do with like a label or something like that was a, pop singer named Jennifer Page. And she, I, I think it was a number one single. This was like right before Britney and Christina. Um, and it was a song called Crush. And I had become friendly with a producer named Mike Elizondo. Um, at the time, he was, he was just a bass player uh, around town. He was doing a lot of sessions and he's my same age. Um, but Mike was, uh, Mike recommended me for this. Um, other listeners may now know uh, Mike as a producer for everything under the sun. Um, he was a protege of Dr. J, uh, Dr. Dre, and uh, I mean I can't even list the, Mike's credits, but you know he's he is now a you know he's one of the guys, right? Yeah. Um, but it just so happened that Mike was was just a friend, you know, when we would go. You know, I'd play gigs with him here and there, and we'd go rollerblading and do dumb things like that. So Mike got me onto this Jennifer Page thing. Um, there was a guy, or there still is a guy, a guy named Barry Squire, who you would get in touch with if, you know, and, and, and if, you know, somehow you would get on Barry's list and get called for auditions, which is, you know, it's kind of different now, but these were definitely more cattle call auditions. And it's like every spring there was like tours, you know, new, new records coming out and tours, uh, for the summer. And I did a lot of auditions through Barry. Um, and I finally landed with this artist named Jude who was on Maverick records. And it was kind of a folky contemporary folk thing, kind of like a Beck hybrid acoustic thing. And so I toured with Jude. Um, and I recorded a little with him too around then. And I actually lived with, some of these North Texas guys I lived with, I was in bands and we, they were all songwriters and stuff. And I was in bands and I was recording with them. So I wasn't necessarily getting called for sessions that early, but I was recording. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, obviously it goes without saying, you know, I said we wouldn't go through your entire, you know, discography and resume, but you know, I, I just want to make sure for, for those that are living under a rock and are unfamiliar, you know, Alanis Morissette, Melissa Etheridge, Chris Cornell, Annie Lennox, 
you know, uh, Stevie Nicks, uh, John Fogarty, Gwen Stefani. I mean, it just goes on and on. You've played with just some legendary artists. And, and I know that there's a, a Glenn Ballard connection in there. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. he was heavily involved with Alanis Morissette and, and you know, mm-hmm. her, her first record. And I know you've done mm-hmm. a lot of work with him over the years. When did, you know, those name brand gigs start happening for you? How long after you made the move to L.A.? Um, I got hired by Alanis in... So I moved to L.A. in January of 96, and I got hired by Alanis in late 2001. Um, so it wasn't that fast, you know what I mean? Um, I, was, I was always working through that time. Um, but as far as, like, you know, overnight success, that's, what, six years, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, fortunately through Alanis, I mean, you know, I, I would say to this day, it's probably my most fond memory of, of, of my career where, you know, cause we were just traveling all over the place, you know, I was seeing the world, um, I was making money and then, you know, man, the awesome thing about her is when she recorded, she would use her touring band, which is kind of unheard of you know it was unheard of it's way more unheard of now but even back then it was and she got me in front of glenn um and you know we recorded a single at one point with glenn and then we ended up recording um the 10-year anniversary of jagged little pill an acoustic version so it's called jagged little pill acoustic and that was the two-week session with glenn so you know, he, I think he, he found, he found that he could trust me, uh, during that session. And, you know, he wasn't calling me immediately after that. He wasn't like, Hey, you're my guy. But (laughs) about a year or two after that, there was a, an opportunity where they needed somebody and my name came up and he was like, Oh yeah, let's get that guy. And then I became his guy. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, and I think it, you know, it goes without saying, you know, when, when you're, you know, building your career and trying to make a name for yourself, when you get in front of a guy like Glenn Ballard, you, you, you know, you can't, you know, you can't drop your sticks, so to speak. Right. I mean, that's, that's the time to shine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty, I mean, I learned, I got to learn a lot when I was tracking with Glenn, I got to experiment a lot. Um, but I was, you know, as far as, playing and I mean I was always creative and he let me be creative so I think um you know just being solid being a solid player and dynamic and musical at that point and then him allowing me to be creative just really opened the door for me becoming um a session drummer and you know kind of being who I am now yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it, nobody is, is ever going to accuse you of, of not paying your dues. Right. I mean, I, that's certainly not, you know, what, what I'm getting at at all, but you know, you, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, you, you uh, I, I know you had to grind it out for a while there, but at some point, um, and you'll be able to put this in words much better than I can. But at some point, you know, along your career, you kind of transitioned into more of a session guy and kind of set up mm-hmm. a home base with your studio. 
what was what was that decision making process like? So that wasn't like that wasn't like um, an immediate thing. Um, one of my goals that kind of got put into my head not long after being in LA, you know, maybe around 98 was, you know, I never liked living in apartments. So I, I was fortunate to, you know, live in a house when I moved here with other guys and we could have band practices in there and I could practice and I drove those guys nuts, but they let me play drums in there. And, you know, I never wanted to live in an apartment where I couldn't play, which I did actually, I did, but um, and I did that for a few years, but there, I, my goal was always to have a house so I could have a garage where I could practice. Yeah. Um, so not long after I, you know, played with Alanis and I saved money, uh, my girlfriend, now wife, we bought a house together and I converted the garage to, I mean, I, it, it, I converted it to a studio, but I didn't do it very well. But I could record out there, and I had been recording. I had been learning how to play guitar and write songs and sing a bit for a while before that. Um, so I wanted to have a space for my stuff. And at that point, I started to acquire more gear and record more. And I did. I was aspiring to be a better studio drummer. And you know, in the early two thousands, it was you know, that's when things were kind of transitioning and I was just kind of part of, part of the transition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure there was a point where I was like, Hey, uh, I'm going to be a home studio drummer, whatever you want to call it. Right. But it just kind of started to happen. But I, but I did say, um, but I, but I did, um, you know, it did, it did start to make sense where I was like, whoa, I got to create my own career here because, you know, playing in real studios is like dying and, and, uh, this is what I want to do. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and I don't know the exact date, you know, but it, it, there was certainly a, you know, a, a, a time where, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I used to read the articles in Modern Drummer about, you know, JR showing up to the studio, you know, right behind his cartage company that had, you know, a case with 30 snare drums in it. And, you know, he's, mm -hmm. you know, he's playing on Michael Jackson records or, or Whitney Houston or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and it seems like just all of a sudden that was no longer, you, you know, you weren't going to grow up to be Jim Keltner, right. Or, or, right. or JR. And it was, you know, everybody kind of scrambled. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, people make fun of drummers for having 30 snare drums, you know, but once you start getting into the home recording thing, all of a sudden you've got 400 microphones, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you, you either go all in or you don't, I, I guess is what I'm getting at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it almost becomes like a, a super nerd thing. You know, you're instead of me being at clubs talking to my friends about drums, I was talking about microphones and mic pre's and things like that. Yeah. You know, so, and it, you know, there's like a weird, I don't want, uh, I mean, it's almost competitive, but it's just like super geekdom, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I want to try that. I want to try this. Can I, I got to save up some money to buy this. But what's the thing that you got, you know? Um, so, uh, 
all my friends were like, that was what we would talk about. I mean, you know, uh, I, uh, anyone that wasn't part of talking about that would just be bored out of their mind. <laughs> you know, talk, you know, cause you're, Oh, do you, do you have the four fourteen or the, you know, you know, 421 or the blah, blah, blah. And everybody knows what you're, you're each other's talking about. You right. know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like when the guitarists hang out with the drummers, right? And they're talking about, you know, their favorite snare drum throw off, right? I mean, they, they right. just they just right. don't care. But, right. you know, but you have been very successful, you know, um, in setting up your studio. Um, you know, you're, I, I, and I don't know this, but I'm assuming you're doing tracks pretty much every day of the week. Yes. It goes, it goes in phases. There are times where I'm, like drowning and there's times that are quiet, you know, um, just like any, any, I think anything in the music business. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have, I have slow times just like everyone else, but I also get very busy too. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, I, I think what's cool is, you know, you've, you've also done some of the, you, you know, uh, and I'm going to get this wrong, but you know, loop loft and things like that, where, you know, folks that don't want to hire a drummer, let's say, or, you know, they're, they're recording songs at home. They can actually buy, you know, loops of you playing and there's so many different textures and sounds in there you know, was that a conscious decision that you were going to do some of that stuff or were you approached by somebody to do some of that stuff or, or how did all that come about? I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, okay. I, it, it seems like two questions in there. Yeah. yeah I'm <laughs> um, sorry. I, I, but, yeah, no, you that's know, okay. stream of consciousness yes. strikes me sometimes. Yeah. The, so the sound thing was, that was literally from being on tour and hanging out with a lot of guitar players who had a lot of pedals, um, guitar players and keyboard players, and really having a lot of envy that these guys could step on a box and their whole environment would change sonically, you know? Yeah. And just really being influenced by, like, what they were able to do, uh, like, in a moment's notice, and me going, like, man, I want to be able to do that with my sounds. Like, you know, so you know, that involves, involved and involves, you know, sometimes using guitar pedals, but also, you know, the deeper I got into recording is like, okay, well, how can I take this acoustic instrument and manipulate it into something that maybe you don't know what it is, you know, but it's still doing the job of, um, you know, what percussionists do or drummers do, yeah. you know? Um, and then I just became really fascinated with listening to, records and, and going like, well, how did they get this drum sound? What are they doing yeah. um, to, to do this? And, um, you know, from like, you know, and now I like, I'm really fascinated with early, early nineties hip hop with like, you know, a lot of that samples, but like tribe called quest and black sheep and, and those records like that. It's just like, I listen, I'm like, okay, a lot of this is programming, but they were definitely sampling loops back then and layering samples. But I'm like, can I can I figure out how to do this? Like, I, what is that sound in case I I get a track to do, and I I'm like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, go in my catalog in my head, and go like, oh yeah, I know I kind of know how to get this, or at least in the ballpark, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. 
Um, so part two would be, I, I met Ryan Gruce who owns the loop loft, uh, a couple of years back and we were just hanging out and, you know, he just said, Hey man, we, you should be a loop loft artist. We, you know, you want to do something? I was like, yes. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And, and there will be more, you know, I put out one, but there definitely will be more, you know, and I've also created a lot of loops but they're, they're anonymous, but they're for um, this software company called Output, and they have, a, they have a plugin called Arcade. So Output Arcade, and I've created tons, hundreds of loops for them, you know, probably actually thousands, you know, but you wouldn't know it was me. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the cool things, um, you know, is when you do have your own home studio, you can try anything. Right. I mean, you just mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. hate it, you delete it. Right. I mean, it's right. it's real simple. Right. And it's not like you're going into, I don't know, electric lady land and, and paying, you know, four hundred dollars an hour to experiment. Mm -hmm. you, you can do that mm -hmm. stuff at home mm -hmm. and get mm -hmm. all kinds of cool stuff. And, and you know, on your website, you know, I, I go to it for inspiration a lot. But, you know, you have a, a you know, a link on your site that's studio sounds and you've got, you know, 70 style drum sounds, 60 style, 80 style, you know, acoustic hip hop loops, uh, just all kinds of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And it's all so cool. And I'm, I, you know, I guess I'm very similar to you in that I, I go, man, how's he doing that? How's he getting that sound? Because mm -hmm. you never know when somebody's going to call you up and say, hey, I really need you to get the Don Henley Eagles sound, you know, for mm -hmm. this track. And you mm -hmm. better know how to do that because somebody else will know how to do it. Right. Yeah. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. And the, and the other thing is, I just think that like being, you know, it used to be, this is the way I think of it. It used to be that, let's say in the eighties, when you would call a session drummer, let's say it was JR or Jeff Picaro or Vinny or, you know, any of these cats, they would call that drummer to do that thing. And they would bring their drums and their sound. And that's why you called them. Right. It's different now. It's different because people, you know, we're just living in a different era, era where people are always referencing other things. So I get a call and they're like, Hey, can you get this Mick Fleetwood th sound? That's kind of what I'm hearing for this. Yeah. And my, my job, the way I look at it is to go, yep, I, kn I know exactly how to do that. And I can get that done for you in the next two hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so that's the way I look at it. And that's part of, I mean, it, it ties in well with, because I love dissecting sounds and I do that on my own. And I also do that. Let's say if somebody sends me a reference, like, Hey man, check out this new tune by so-and-so we, we really like this drum sound. Can you get something in that ballpark? You know, and I, and I can kind of listen to it and go, okay, I'm pretty sure I can get pretty close to that. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, I think there's a lot of artists these days uh, and I'll just give you one example, but they'll pay big money to go into like Ocean Way or, or one of these, you know, world famous studios and they don't, mm -hmm. you know, and then they replace all the drum sounds. The reason you pay mm -hmm. to go to a place like that is to get the room sound for the drums, in my opinion, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then they end up replacing everything in Ableton or something like that. I, I just think modern recording is more nuanced and textured than, you know, throw up a bunch of mics, get a great room sound and play. 
Yeah. Um, you know, some, I, I, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of aspects to that. One, I don't think people make production choices on the spot. They don't want to commit to anything mm-hmm. these days, you know, which may lead to an excess amount of microphones instead of saying, Hey, we're going to do this. You know what I mean? Like this, we want to, you know, we're going to commit to this. Um, they want to have options. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the other aspect of that is that you may get a great drum sound, but then you, you're adding, you like, since you're not recording live, they're layering keyboards and guitars and all kinds of things. And all of a sudden your great drum sounds are just getting, literally drowned out the squashed for sonic space mm-hmm. you know what i mean like yeah like we need to we man our our great snare drum sound we need a little we need a look like there's hi-hat bleed in there which is like impossible to get out <laughs> right. uh, no matter how well you record it we need a sample to to help lift through the guitar the heavy guitars or the layers of keyboards or things like that you know what i mean yeah um so, I mean, I see, I see both sides of it, um, where, you know, sometimes it would be nice if people were to commit more. Um, but that's just not the way it works anymore because rarely are you tracking live to where it's like, okay, everybody's sound is ready to go. And this is how it's going to sound. You know, when we leave, it's not really going to be any different. Right. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, I've talked to so many drummers, you know, that, that do lots of sessions who will, you know, do a drum track, send it back to whomever, you know, they, they've done it from home or from another studio. And then when they hear the, the finished product, they don't even know it's them playing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard that mm-hmm. story a few times. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think this might be the song I played on, but that's definitely mm-hmm. not my drums. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. just chopped and pasted and, and you know, all the, all the treatments that get done these days. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever had that happen to you? Many times. <laughs> I just, it doesn't phase me anymore. Um, you know, uh, one, something that happened to me early on is I was recording with Alanis Morissette and we were working on this record. It, it, it was eventually released as a record called So-Called Chaos. We tracked a whole bunch of tunes um, and then the label then sent it to John Shanks to, he wasn't producing initially. Um, they sent it to him that, you know, they, they, this was like what, 2003, 2004, when he was like, uh, you know, really popular. Um, and John's guy is Kenny Aronoff. So, you know, the record came out and Kenny's on most of the tracks and I'm kind of, you know, I'm on a few of them. And then there's one track where it's me and him, but it's not really labeled correctly, which whatever, it doesn't matter. And I, it really bummed me out, man. I was like, oh, this, like, like shoot me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. that was a tough one. But then I ran into Kenny um, at the NAMM show, you know, a year or two later. And he's always been a really great guy. And I'd met him before. And and I, I walked up to him and I said, hey, Kenny, my name's Blair Sinta. And he goes, oh, hey, man, we, sh- we, we both played on Al- that Alanis record together, huh? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, like, what a way to approach it. You know what I mean? Yeah. He wasn't like, dude, I fucking took your tracks and uh, <laughs> replaced you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I was like, wow, that's an incredible way to 
you know, just treat somebody, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and subsequently I have replaced a few people like, I mean, in my mind, like some people you wouldn't believe that I've replaced, uh, and it just happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't really take it personally. And if somebody takes my drum tracks and I don't recognize it at the end because they sound replaced it or chopped it up or whatever, I'm just like, whatever, man, like this is, it's just the way it is. Yeah. So if it bums you out, it's, <laughs> it's just another thing to carry around, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I say it all the time on this podcast, man, if you're going to do this, <laughs> you know, if you're going to be a modern day musician, drummer, wh- whatever you want to say, you got to have mm-hmm. a pretty thick skin because a lot mm-hmm. of crappy stuff will happen to you in this business. And it's how you react right. to that. That's going right. to, you know, make the difference in, in, in your world kind of thing. Right. And, Um, you know, so you just, you go in and you do the job and, you know, I I say this all the time as well, you know, I may be the perfect guy for this song, right? I maybe even more perfect than a guy like Blair Senta or Matt Chamberlain, Mm -hmm. probably Mm -hmm. not, but I could be the guy for a song and, and vice versa. You know, most of the time Blair's going to be a better fit than Jamie on a song. You you know what I'm saying? So you just gotta, Mm -hmm. you you gotta understand where your strike zone is and do what you do as, as well as you can in every situation. Right. Right. You know, so, um, exactly. So let's, if you're, if you're cool with it, let's transition a little bit to sticks and wires because, you know, this is, um, you know, I was familiar with your career, you know, I I knew about all the, you know, different artists that you've played with, but Mm -hmm. sticks and wires is kind of where it really dawned on me how much great work you're doing to support other drummers, right? To, mm-hmm. to teach mm-hmm. things and to pass along the knowledge that you've gained over the years. When did Sticks and Wires come around and what was the thought process behind doing that? Um, well, the name, you know, I think I've been actually doing it longer than actually calling it Sticks and Wires, but, you know, a lot of it was just YouTube based and literally wanted to take control of like my name in, in YouTube, you yeah. know what I mean? Cause I yeah. would go on there and I would see things that shot from my iPhone and I was just like, I don't want that. That'd be the thing that comes up <laughs> when people, you know, YouTube, my name. Um, is that a thing? You see Google my name, but YouTube, my name. Yeah, well, abs- um, <laughs> absolutely. YouTube, YouTube the heck out of Blair Santa kids. <laughs> yeah. So, so part of it was that. And, um, That was coinciding, I think, at the same time with, well, what can I do that would be interesting? And part of it was, well, I'm getting pretty good at recording, and there were some things that I really wanted to dissect. And one of, I think, one of the early things that I did on there was the when the when the levee breaks, and I was like, I just really want to see if I can, how close I can get to this in my little room. Yeah, because everyone knows it was recorded at a castle, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, this was done with two mics. Like, just can't be that hard. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, You know what I mean? Like on an engineering level. I I, I do. But it's, you know, it's one of the most sampled drum beats ever. You know, I would think Bonham and Stubblefield are the two most sampled drummers of all time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
So, of course, I'm not saying, hey, I, I nailed John Bonham, but I was just like, can I, how close of a sound can I get this? And I just started dissecting it as close as possible. And I did that. And then, you know, I, I did the funky drummer. And then, and then in my head, I was like, I really want to do in the air tonight. <laughs> like a couple of people had mentioned it. And I was talking to my friend Scott at DW. And I was like, man, I really want to do this, but I need one more concert, Tom. Like, and he's like, man, like, like, you know, we, we can make a kit, we can make a kit, like a, a Phil Collins kit. And like, I was like, really? Like, yeah, man, let's do that. And like, you know, so I like totally went down that road. And when I did it, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to program this beat and everything. So I just got like really maniacal, like crazy about it. And then I, I just started to teach it. And then, and then because of home studios and, Oh, man, especially in the COVID era of yeah. things like, you know, I've, I've just started to build a reputation of people seeing that. And just, you know, I'm, you know, honestly, just trying to advertise myself, like say, hey, I can record tracks and I can do a lot of things. So if you need it, you know, call me because I can, I can sure. million myself. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. It, 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 two things that I want to take out of that about in the air tonight First of all, I wish I could call Garrison up and say, hey, man, build me a kit and send it to me. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I, my, my path has crossed with Scott a few times. Great guy. Um, you know, I, obviously, uh, I am not a DW artist, but, you know, it, mm-hmm. it must be nice to, <laughs> to get the Phil Collins kit built. That's awesome. Yeah. That is and I awesome. I was going to give it back, but I was like. I was like, I can't give this back now. Yeah, I bought it. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's just so cool. That's awesome. But mm-hmm. um, I, I I came across, um, and it may even be a more recent video. I I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. you were kind of dissecting, you know, Stubblefield and and some of the, you know, the the James Brown stuff, and it was mm-hmm. like, look, you know, you can get these sounds, but it's a lot of it is in the way these guys hit their drums. You know, they didn't play hard, you know, it was, and it was, you know, a lot of times it's more about recording technique than it is about just the actual notes that are played. I mean, Mm -hmm. no matter how I want to, I can't recreate the stack sound from Memphis because Mm -hmm. I don't have all that awesome vintage gear. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but just the way you approach those things to say, look, guys, you can do this without a million dollars worth of gear, but you have to mm-hmm. approach everything from the right mindset, which I think is a really, you know, unique way of teaching recording drums. Yeah. Well, the thing that started to dawn on me with some of these things, like was especially going as deep as like trying to get a Phil Collins drum sound in my room the opposite end was if you think about 19, when was the funky drummer? 1970. Yeah. It's just something, something like, that. like that. I mean, and you actually go back and listen to the recording. You're like, wait a minute. Like they didn't, there was not 10 mics on this drum kit, you know? And when you start to really listen to it, you're like, I mean, I, the way I came up with it is I was like, I think there's one mic on here. I don't really know, but to me, it seems like, you know, you don't, part of the thing about that beat is you don't really hear the kick drum, like, especially, especially in 2020, right? Kick drum right. is king of everything, yes. right? But in 1970, that was not a thing that 
people weren't like, turn up the bass more because your record was going to skip, you know? Um, <laughs> right. So I started to, to go like, okay, wait a minute. Like, oh, can you do this with one microphone? Because it might have been done with one microphone, if, if not three at the most. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then you start to go like, okay, well, I'm pretty good at, this sounds pretty close, but now I got to play it right. Like, and that really comes down to touch and like rim shots and where you play the eye at and how loud you play the bass drum. So it, it balances in with the microphone. I mean, right. Like it starts to get so deep, you know what I mean? And man, I mean, just recreating Clyde or Jabo is like, you know, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you can't just do that as a player. You know what I mean? That takes that takes work. You know, it does. And what those guys, you know, the early, you know, recording drummers, what they were so good at that I think is a lost art unless you really work on it, is having volume control over four limbs. Right. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, I think so many drummers are just used to you know having eight mics on their kit and they just play how they play, and then mm-hmm. you fix it in the control room, right? But mm-hmm. when you right. have one mic or two mics on your kit, you know, it's like, okay, in this chorus section, I- I'm going to play a little heavier on the hi-hat, you know, to bring mm-hmm. that to the front of the mix. Those guys right. had to essentially EQ themselves or, or you mm-hmm. know, balance, co- you know, compress themselves. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a lost art form. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes, partly. I I, I don't know if I want to say lost because there's a lot of great drummers that can do that. Um, But I do think that like the way we play live, because you got to remember a lot of those guys came, they were originally jazz drummers, right? Yeah. Um, And they were playing in live settings where they didn't have a monitor. Yeah. Like they... They just didn't. So they had to be able to hear everybody, which is partly why they played how they played, right? So they got to play loud enough to be heard, but quiet enough where they can hear everyone else. Yeah. Um, so they just learned to play like that. And then, you know, especially I'm sure I'm just, it's conjecture, but I'm sure playing in James Brown's band, there are things that he wanted to hear <laughs> most prominently. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um <laughs> So they were, they were probably balancing themselves to like, you know, like James is like, I got to hear the one like, okay, well, what's landing on one. (laughs) Let's make that, let's make that the loudest thing. I mean, I'm just, I'm just spitballing right now, but, um, so now, but now we have in-ear monitors and, you know, just to go on a tangent, like in-ear monitors drive me up the wall because you're then relying on a third person, a second person, a monitor engineer to balance everyone out. So, so you hear it. Okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, let's plug our ears. So someone else can balance the band for us. Like that makes no sense to me. You know what I mean? Even if you have a monitor, you're still balancing yourself. You could, yeah, I need more of this, but you're still like playing acoustically when you, but once you plug your ears in with any your monitors, I just find it, I just find it kind of ironic, the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, recently I switched to using in-ear monitors and Mm -hmm. it it is, you know, uh, it's quite a different um, experience, you know? I mean, 
you, you lose a lot of stuff. I mean, in some cases, it's great. Like for me, I, I was told either start using them or go deaf. Take your pick, right? Mm-hmm. So sure. I, I didn't really have much of a choice. But mm-hmm. when you first put the in-ears in, you're like, man, I, I can't hear anything other than what's coming through that monitor desk, right? right. What, what's being mixed right. for me. And you're like, gosh, I miss all of the the ambient sounds. And, yeah. you, you know, so it does take some recalibration as a player to get comfortable with them. So I agree with you 100% there. Yeah, it takes a it takes a really great monitor engineer to be comfortable. And look, I, I'm not a dinosaur. Like I get it. Like we have click tracks and sequences, and you know you're linked up through Ableton, so lights are you know being triggered when you hit a certain sample or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like I get it. Like this is the this is the age we're in. But when we're talking about being a balanced player, um, yeah. Yeah, it it definitely uh, it it definitely takes some of that away, and you know, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, I said, don't you think it's kind of a lost art form? And you know, look, I know that there are guys at at really high levels that are great at doing that. I just don't think it's something that younger players learn or have to learn now. You know, I I think that was a little closer to the point I was trying to make. Yeah. You know. Because I see it all the time, you know, you go see a band live and, you know, there's just very little dynamically in younger players today, you know, whereas back in my day, we always had shitty PA systems, right? So I had to, you know, I had to know how to do those things or I couldn't hear anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're in such a weird era, you know, of, of all this because, um, you know, you're forced to do certain things. Look, we're listening to music with hardly any dynamics these days. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's influential. Um, I would say, I would just go, I would, I would take it farther and almost say like dynamics are a lost art form. <laughs> you know what I mean? I um, uh, but I mean, you gotta, you gotta go with the times too. I mean, it's just so weird. I mean, there's incredible drummers that learn from YouTube, but they've never played with people also, yeah. you know, so there's these weird gaps of, um, knowledge, even though you could maybe play the shit out of the drums, but you don't play with people. I mean, that's really weird. I know of a certain circumstance that like, whatever, I don't I won't go too far, but I'm just, I'm just like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like really the guy from YouTube. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's just, I mean, we're just in an interesting time. You know what I mean? There's a lot of balancing going out, but I, I will I'll also say this. I would say that like, you know, me going to North Texas and learning how to play jazz. I mean, that was a lot of that was frowned upon too. It's like, guys are like, man, you don't learn to play jazz at college. You go to a club and you play with guys. <laughs> till midnight. You know what I mean? So it's all the same. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. It just happens that, you know, you know, here we are 25 years later than when I was in school and we're like, Oh, the kids these days, they don't have any dynamics. You know, it's like, it's like, well, these motherfuckers don't want to play jazz. They're learning it in college. You know, it's like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, you know, what, what, uh, one generation's get off my lawn was becomes exactly. our get off my lawn eventually. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And hopefully, you know what? 
it's all learned over time. No one's, no one's a fully formed, well, rarely is there a fully formed musician at 20 years old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There are some people that are, but, uh, you know, I mean, like we're talking about it, like I'm still trying to get better. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, and that gives the rest of us hope. You, you know what I'm saying? Like to, to know, for me to know that you're still working on improving it, you know, it, it, it it is a lifelong love of learning to get better on your instrument. And, you know, I mean, I have people say to me all the time, I wish I could play drums. I'm just not coordinated enough. And my response invariably is when you were born, you were not coordinated enough to walk. And when you, <laughs> when you learn to walk, you weren't coordinated enough to run. It's something right. you can teach yourself. Get started. What are you waiting for? Right. It ain't easy. No. It ain't easy, but you can do it. Yeah, that's right. It's what is yeah. important to you. And if you want to learn how to do, you know, I don't know, paradiddles at 300 BPM, by golly, start at 60. And you'll get there right. eventually, you know. So right. what are you waiting for? Um, Blair, yeah. I, I, I yeah. want I want to be respectful of your time. And, and we're running short of time, unfortunately. But... Um, our tradition here on the drum shuffle is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. I, I think the whole interview has been a great piece of advice, but, um, you know, over your career, uh, that's just been amazing. You've played with so many legendary artists, you know, what is the one thing, if you can distill it down that far, what, what's something you would offer as a piece of advice to other drummers? I would say put yourself in an environment where you can grow, you know, um, whether it's a big city or a small town, but just try to play music with the best people that you know, or the best people that you want to be able to play with, like aspire to play music with those people and you'll be a better musician and a better drummer. And that's going to help you end up where you want to be. Yeah. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. So, um, as we get ready to wrap up here, um, you know, obviously we mentioned sticks and wires. I know you give lessons, um, you know, how can folks, is your website the best way for folks to reach out if they're looking for tracks or looking for a lesson, et cetera? Yes. Um, I've, I mean, yeah, I have two different forms on my website, but it doesn't kind of, doesn't matter. It's still going to come to me. You can hit me up for lessons. Um, people, you know, I'm assuming this is m- mostly drummers listening to this. So, you know, but if you need a drum track, you can reach me through there. Um, I have a Patreon page where I'm teaching a lot of, you know, what, that's what Sticks and Wires is, teaching a lot of recording for drums in home studios. I try to break it down to, you know, where people can understand because because learning to record can be really daunting. Um, and then I have a, I have a, a course for sale, and that's recording, um, basic recording, one mic, two mics, three mics, four mics, and some other information in there, and that's about a two-hour-long course. And you can also find that. It's all through my website. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, we're definitely going to send some folks your way, um, you know, to check everything out. But, you know, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And, and the good thing about, you know, this show, what I, I hope it is, is just a big community of drummers helping one another um, yeah, we've, we've got to have you back for a part two. Uh, we, we often, yeah, we yeah. often have guests back. Um, so keep us posted on everything going on in your life. 
And right. hopefully after COVID, you'll have a lot to report, right? <laughs> like <laughs> like a tour with Zeppelin or something. I don't know. but Well, that would be something. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that would be something. Yeah. Um, but Jamie, I, re- I really appreciate you having me, man. Like the, I love the Southern hospitality, man. <laughs> and, uh, it's very, very easy to talk to you. So well, yeah, there, there's so much South in my mouth, you know, uh, as my friend, <laughs> as my friend Patrick Ferguson likes to say, whenever I open my mouth, they're like, are you here to change the filters for the air conditioner? You know, what's going on? Because, you know, it's just, it's assumed that I'm a skilled tradesman when I speak. So uh, I don't know what that is. But anyway, we will absolutely have you back for some more Southern hospitality uh, very, very soon. Thank you so much for your time, Blair. Appreciate it, Jamie. Take care, man. All right. We'll see you now. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 117 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. A million and one thanks to Blair Senta for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on the show. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed talking with him and just uh, tremendous insights into being a recording drummer, I thought. Um, I, I learned a lot from him. And he's just a phenomenal player. So thanks to Blair for taking time out of his schedule to do so. Uh, as I ask you guys every single week, uh, and truly, I appreciate all of your efforts in this, but please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you are using to listen to the Drum Shuffle podcast. It helps us more than you'll ever know. And again, I sincerely appreciate it. The biggest thing you can do to help me and the show continue to grow is share a link with a friend. Uh, Make a Facebook post, an Instagram post, uh, tweet it out on Twitter. Say, hey, listen to this podcast. That helps us continue to grow and we appreciate it sincerely. As is always the case, we answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle our email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the And you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. You are not going to want to miss some of the shows that we have coming up. Next week, I am going to be joined by the legendary journalist Robin Flans uh, talking about her new book called It's About Time, Jeff Picaro, The Man and His Music, and I am going to be giving away a copy of her new biography on Jeff Picaro. It is a fantastic book, and Robin and I had a great conversation about Jeff Picaro and the book. You're not going to want to miss that episode next week as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday. Again, thanks so much to each and every one of you for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without you. Please remember, Funnel's version of Statesboro Blues hits the streets on Friday, November 20th of 2020. I hope everybody will check it out, stream it a few times, let me know what you think, and I appreciate that as well. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.